Welcome to the Worshipped Woman Podcast. I am your host, Kelly Kristen. I am a life and relationship coach, deep healing facilitator, and subconscious change expert. On this podcast, we will dive deep into personal growth, transformation, and relationships, releasing patterns of toxicity, codependency, and people-pleasing as we explore what it means to be the worshipped woman. If you are ready to heal, embody your worth, and raise your standards in life and love, you are in the right place. I am so happy to have you here. Now, let's get started. Hello, sisters. Welcome back to the Worship Women podcast. I am so, so, so excited for today's episode. You guys know I don't do a ton of guests on here, but this woman that you're about to hear speak, I think she is absolutely incredible. And uh, her name is Dr. Janie Lacey, and she's actually a licensed relationship trauma psychotherapist with over 15 years of experience working with those that have unsuccessfully tried to break free from their toxic relationship patterns. And she really, her and I do a lot of similar work. We really love to get to the root cause of, you know, what causes people to get into toxic relationships and, and really doing a lot of the trauma work and the things that you have to do to overcome this. And I wanted to bring her on the podcast because she talks about love addiction and, and really one of the aspects that makes toxic relationships so hard is this addiction. So we get into the nitty gritty of what love addiction is, how you can know if you're experiencing love addiction, um, you know, really some steps that you can take to break yourself out of this. If you find you listening to this and you're like, oh my gosh, I might be somebody who is in this love addiction cycle and how you can move forward and change these patterns within yourself. And Dr. Janie is just such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to toxic relationships, when it comes to the addiction to toxic love. So you're going to hear a really wonderful, candid conversation between us. And of course, if you want to hear um, more from Dr. Janie, she actually has her own talk show called Let's Talk About It with Janie Lacey, which is I was actually a guest on hers. Um, you can find that on iHeartRadio, Apple, uh, Spotify, all the places. So if you want to get into her world, she also has some things at the end that we talk about. And I'll be sure to link those up in the show notes as well. I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation. So without any further ado, let's hear from Dr. Janie Lacey. Love addiction. What is love addiction? You know, love addiction is when someone gets either, I'm going to make it really simple, gets attached to an ideal, right? So we think about, as opposed to what real love is, and a love addiction is we're now attached to an ideal. We're attached to 
enmeshment we're attached to no boundaries we're attached to you know when we look at when we look at love addiction in particular from a clinical perspective we're looking from a love addict to a love avoidant right so there are different matches so to speak but usually when we're looking at the umbrella term there's usually one that will fall and these are just terms just to describe symptoms love addict love avoidant the love addict in particular gets is primarily attached to the ideal and they have a high need to have intimacy. But what happens is they attach to someone who eventually can't return the same type of affection, right? So the love avoidant, so to speak, is someone who, you know, I kind of put them in a category of really having a blind spot. They don't know what they don't know and they give what they think they're giving, but essentially it's what other terms that we can refer to a love avoidant is someone who's emotionally unavailable. But what happens is for people, they get so confused because the love avoidant in the beginning comes on very strong. You know, there's terms that we'll use, and this is not healthy, but there's terms, and when people hear it, sometimes they think, well, that's a good thing. Well, no, it's not. We hear the term love bombing, right? So uh, yeah. the love avoidant in particular in the beginning will usually love bomb the love addict. And that means giving lots of time, lots of attention, lots of gifts, lots of affection, constantly communicating. And usually the love addict, so to speak, the one who's, um, we'll just make it for simple terms, is attached to the ideal of love. There's an ideal. And so this person comes in, they fulfill that fantasy. And she or he and the love addict are like, wow, I found my soulmate. You know, it reminds me of, if you've seen the movie um, Gone Girl, and the mm -hmm. very beginning, Gone Girl to me is love addiction on steroids. So Nick, when he's meeting Amy in the bar, Amy says to him, who are you? And Nick comes in and says, I'm the guy who's going to save you. <laughs> right? <laughs> and th that is the stuff that movies are made of. And that's yeah. what we get attached to. That person's yeah. going to come and rescue us. You know, and he's going to be my soulmate. He's going to be my other half. Or what was the, the movie with, with uh, Tom Cruise? You complete me? Right, right, right. <laughs> right. So we get attached to the ideal. So that love addict and that love um, avoidant is the perfect match because there's a constant come here, go away. I love you. I hate you. But what normally happens is there's stages, right? So in the very beginning, you get into that, you know, we also refer sometimes as the U-Haul couple. You don't even know his name, Kelly, but yet you already have the U-Haul and you don't even know, <laughs> you don't even know his middle name. You don't even know where he's from, but the U-Haul is there. You're already moving in after two weeks, <laughs> right. right? So, you know, the intensity is really high in the beginning. And when we come from a place of dysfunction, we mistake intensity for intimacy. So we'll call our girlfriends, Kelly, oh, I found the one. He's the right. one, he's everything I've been looking for. And I'm getting ready to move in with him. And then Kelly's telling Janie, oh, but you just met him. But I love him, right? This is how these conversations go. You don't understand go. <laughs> what it's like. You just don't even know. This is what we call drunk with love. Right, right. <laughs> so no matter what Kelly will tell me as my friend, I'm going to rationalize. I'm going to make excuses. Even though there's something inside of me that says, oh, well, maybe she's right. But I'm already drunk. I'm seeing with this veil. So then you get moved in really quickly. And then what happens is sometimes this happens happens after two weeks, it can happen after four months, the anxious stage sets in. That anxious stage says, okay, now that the love, you know, or some people would call it the honeymoon stage. Now that has gone, we're starting to pick at each other. We're in the restaurant. Are you looking at that girl? Well, what girl? 
right? We start getting anxious because of sometimes we have an abandonment wound and that abandonment wound is constantly looking for this threat. Who is she? He's going to leave me. Right. right. So our insecurity, all this stuff gets um get, gets pulled up. So that's my long winded way to answer the one little question, but <laughs> to map it out. <laughs> so and from what you're saying, it kind of sounds like being the person who is the love addict, right, is sort of the perfect bait for a narcissist, like uh, the perfect bait for that relationship where, um, you know, the person presents themselves to be one way to kind of lure you in to where you get to that place where you really feel attached to them and then take that love away. So when you are coming from that place where you are the love addict in this scenario, right? So we have an addict mixed with an an avoidant for that perfect sort of chemistry, right? Oh, how lovely it works out. But when you are the person that is the addict and then the person starts to pull away, because maybe you have your own wounds going on. Maybe you are pushing them away a little bit with your own abandonment issues and things going on, or maybe it was just going to happen anyway, because they are really avoidant. So once they got you into their little cycle of whatever it was, and they feel like, okay, I've got you hooked. Now I'm going to pull away. What, what actually happens within that dynamic now? So what happens with the love avoidant and the love addict, the love avoidant starts to feel smothered. Right. And we kind of use it some other usually I'm just these are typical scenarios. This is not um, it's a spectrum, but this is a typical scenario. Just in case people are listening, everyone doesn't fall in this particular scenario where the love avoidant about what I'm about to say usually has come from either an overbearing mother or a very neglectful mother. So then in a, I'm going to use just heterosexual language. So let's just put the love avoidant as the male and the love addict as the female. So when he starts feeling smothered, he starts feeling controlled, he starts getting drowned because unconsciously, subconsciously, his unhealed stuff, she feels like my mom. So he starts pulling away. And sometimes when he pulls away, it seems really reasonable. He's working now late. He's doing all these extra things. But inside of her, her anxiety starts kicking in because of, let's use it as a typical scenario, her abandonment wounds. So any type of separation starts feeling anxious and then she potentially can start toxically fighting. And separation could even be that he's just going down the street to his mother's house. He's just going to play basketball with the boys, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. she starts poking because she doesn't realize that it's really her abandonment moon, but she thinks, well, if he's going over there, he must really like them more than he, he, he doesn't like me. So her narratives of not good enough starts to play. Well, he's working all the time because he really doesn't want to be home with me. Oh, he's all the way, he's always at his mom's house because he doesn't love me. So then the games start to play. Right. And when the games start to play, then sometimes the immaturity in the relationship even says that. Well, you know, it seems like you really, you really don't like them more than you like me, or you don't spend that much time with me. And then there's the dynamic, it starts to be birthed. So she starts chasing, he starts running. And it's what Pia Melody so beautifully says, it's the back walking away. You get addicted to the back walking away, right? The anxious, because now she's going back to her childhood. She doesn't realize this, but all she really wants is love to be heard, to be seen. So she starts chasing him. But what she does is she sabotages it because mm-hmm. she's pointing out all the things that he's doing wrong. Well, we're not having enough sex. You don't spend time with me. You don't call me when you come home. You don't tell me you love me anymore, right? And this Kelly can even happen after four months of being together. It can happen very quickly for some couples because they're in a cycle. He's in a cycle 
and she's in a cycle. It's the perfect storm. So he's running away, she's chasing. And then as soon as she gets cold, cold usually the love, uh, love addict goes cold for a shorter period of time. She goes cold, she pulls away, he feels it, doop, doop, doop. he comes back in with the carrots, promises to change. And then they may stay close for a little bit, but they cannot both, for different reasons, stand intimacy, true intimacy. So one of them is going to sabotage it. So he starts pulling away again. She starts chasing. And then the cycle starts over and over and over again. And usually with a love avoidant, he either they're either going to keep doing the same toxic cycle together, or he eventually, or she, finds someone else and creates the same dynamic. The newness for the love avoidant is what really kind of incites their endorphins and all the chemicals and all the stuff that happens inside of them. So normal relationships are going to have times of boredom. They're going to have times of nothingness. There's going to have right. times of, you know, it's, the work is going to have to be. But when you look at a love addicted couple, the love addict, so especially, is constantly trying to get back to that moment of time of Nick and Amy you're the one that's going to save me. And then boom, she falls in love or thinks she falls in love in the moment. So she's right. trying to get back to that moment over and over and over again. Isn't this Kelly? Why we have so many love movies, love stories, right. Rihanna, I, love on the brain. <laughs> yeah. I I'll always say like, because, um, you know, we both work in similar areas of working with women healing from toxic relationships. And it's like one of the biggest things is that subconsciously how we get programmed to view relationships through TV and movies, through all of these things that we see that are so dysfunctional that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Like I can't even watch certain things anymore. I'm like, oh my gosh, how did I used to watch this? This is so <laughs> terrible. But you grow up thinking, oh, that's how love is, or that's how it's supposed to be, or you know, really sort of idealizing the obsession, right? Like this obsessive thing that happens. And so if you're somebody listening to this right now and you're like, oh, you know, am I a little bit of a love addict? Um, what, well, what would you say are like the hallmark things that would indicate, yeah, you, you are a love addict. Let's start there. You know, the first thing, it's not a problem in a relationship, it's a pattern. Because everything that we mentioned, people that may not be in an addicted relationship may experience some of those things. But usually, if someone is listening to us, they can look back and let's even say the past three or four that they've dated significantly. That means like four months or, or more. That's significant these days. <laughs> so if you're looking back and there's probably some similarity there, there's a probably a pattern and the pattern, if we take it one step deeper, is how you feel. If you look at those relationships and you took a measurement, well, you know, I felt like he really wasn't interested in me after a certain period of time. I really feel like, you know, alone in the relationship. There's usually in the patterns that people can take a measurement of, you know what, I think I really like the ideal of him. But even when he comes around, I really don't like him. And this is another mm -hmm. clue. When people have the breakup and they get back together, when they break up, you know, for the first two weeks, we just know mentioning the brain, we know how the brain works. For the first two weeks, it's like, oh, I'm so glad. And you can use anger. Then after two weeks, you have a fur enough, you have a further enough break in the relationship, you start going back in the fantasy. Well, maybe he wasn't that bad. Well, maybe it was me. Maybe I should have done this more. And the next thing you know, it's one o'clock at night, Kelly. And then you send that message, hey, are you up? Right. <laughs> and then it's back again. And then the first time you spend some significant time with him, you feel this. 
oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm back here again. Now I remember why I broke up with him the first time. If you felt that multiple times, there's usually something, I mean, we have actually scales where we have people, we give them 27, there's there's uh, characteristics and we have them go through those characteristics. But usually people, when they describe it to me as I'm just describing it, funny but not, it's usually in that pattern of I'm attached to a fantasy. When the reality sets in, then I go running. And then when I have further enough distance from them, I go back to the fantasy. And just think about this, if someone's listening, if you are out there social media stalking your ex and you're thinking, well, maybe he wasn't that bad or, Mm -hmm. you know, you start liking his pictures, you want to get his attention. It's almost like you have, I call it, you get amnesia. You get amnesia as to the reason why you're not in that toxic relationship. And then you get attached to the image of who they were, the image of who you want them to be. And that's what gets women in particular to lose their dignity. You know, please, you know, and I, and I, and and I hate this, but it's real Kelly. So we got to talk about it is when women lose their dignity, this happens in private, doesn't happen in public. Please. Can you just give me another chance? You know, I'll be everything you want. You were right. And when women do that, I just like, Oh, it's like nails on the board, right? Because the little girl that comes out who does so desperately wants to be loved and she loses her dignity in those moments because she doesn't realize that that's not as you mentioned, it's her programming. It's her little girl self that's coming out so desperate to be loved. So it's in our patterns. It's not in our problem. It's not a relationship problem. So, you know, something anyone can do that that's listening to this is they can actually write out their relationships, right? Literally put out the, or if they don't want to put their the names down, just put out their significant relationships and describe those people as far as character traits or how they felt. And usually when people see that, Callie, it's right in their face. They're like, man, I just was dating a bunch of Bobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was just different ages. He had a different career. He had a different skin tone, but it was all Bob. Right. You know, and it's important for us to take that inventory. It is. And I think any time that we have that feeling, and I know because I, I've definitely had a little bit of this in my, in my past. So I relate. Okay, everybody, <laughs> I relate, right? <laughs> but it's it's that feeling of obsession that feeling of like it has to be this person and what are they doing and what's going on and everything is outside of you i think that that's the hallmark of really any addiction right where it's like an obsession with something outside of yourself that you think is going to give you something right absolutely you have that obsession and then you give more time and attention and it increases over time right Mm -hmm. right so if you're in that position it's always there's an underlying dysfunction, right? There's an underlying dysfunction. So in your work with, you know, primarily women who have been in these scenarios, what is it that you find that is mostly underneath this addiction? There's a couple of things. Most of the time there is untreated childhood wounds, and that can include abuse. That can include neglect. Most of the time I find it's more neglect because women will say to me, they'll come, well, I have a, you know, and I'm making it different. I have a, I had a good childhood. My mom, parents were there, you know, so, you know, they don't, they can't tie it to anything specific. So it's like the current that's underneath the surface and it's what they didn't get is what they're chasing versus what happened to them. So, you know, I'll see two dominant patterns. I'll see untreated sexual and emotional abuse, and then I'll see emotional neglect. Mm-hmm. But the emotional neglect sometimes is harder for people to get there because I can relate to that, right? I had both parents, you know, I grew up with both parents. I, I had friends, I had sports, 
But when my father passed away now, that was in 2012, at his funeral, I could not remember a time, Kelly, that he ever in his living life told me out of his words to my eyes that he loved me. Wow. It, it would be written in his cards, but I knew that his my, my stepmom would be the one writing that, right? So that was neglect. Yeah. And but, you know, when you're a young person, you don't realize that that's ne neglect. Right. So my dad was an alcoholic. So I remember just saying, well, I'm just going to stay away from people that didn't that don't drink. And I ended up marrying someone just like my dad <laughs> and it had nothing to do with drinking because the person didn't drink. But it was the stuff underneath the surface. It was I'm going to make you feel the same way that you from your childhood neglect you. And then you're trying to chase and trying to get someone to only if only if he can see this or only if right so then we start right. assigning a fantasy so what i was chasing was the ghost of my dad right and right. they were trying to make up something that we didn't we didn't get so usually there is untreated childhood wounds and abuse issues and then from adulthood standpoint you know there's self-worth issues there's self-esteem issues i mean there's lots of different you know, pillars that start to get buried underneath that, what we call, we call it original trauma, right? So there's original trauma. And then through our life, we kind of stack the trauma because, you know, it's what we call trauma repetition. Trauma repetition is, is now Janie, you know, who is neglected from her father is going to content, continuously date or be in relationship with men who are going to make her feel the way that she did in her childhood. She's right. going to, they're going to make her feel invisible. They're going to make her feel good, not good enough. She's going to make perform an audition constantly trying to get someone to love her until you have enough of these patterns until you get sick of being sick of sick and tired of being sick and tired and then you realize the common denominator is me mm -hmm. and it's usually when people get to that point where we stop outsourcing our problems and we realize that everything we have to solve our problems and to heal is what's inside of us but it's usually what we call breaking through denial right and i'm just using it as a, an example janie jennifer whoever we have to break through denial to say that you know what perhaps I didn't have a good childhood as much as I would like to. It has nothing to do with my parents. They right. did the best that they could, but it didn't change my experience from being their child. And, you know, especially there's a book called Adult Children of um, Immature Parents. Great quick read. But just imagine, you know, I imagine myself, I had my son when I was 35. Imagine me having my son at 21. Oh, my Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> I think about it now, right? So I can think in terms of my parents having me at a young age that they were immature parents, right? I completely get that, but it still does. And I say this on per on purpose because sometimes people feel like they're dishonoring their parents, especially if they're alive. It's not about them, but it's about our experience of them. And if we don't break through the denial and acknowledge our experience, then we're not going to heal. We're not going to heal. It doesn't mean I got to go to my mom or you know go to your dad if your dad is alive and tell them, oh, you were a bad mom or dad. No, it has nothing to do with them. It has to say that, you know what? I felt invisible as a little girl. I felt not good enough. I mm -hmm. felt like I had to perform. And then when I became of age, then when I was cute and then I started getting attention from boys, whew, I felt something there, right? right. So we have right. to acknowledge all of that. Oh God, I think that's so important. And I think the, the neglect piece is very important too, because I think it's somewhat obvious nowadays, like with so much information you get, like, okay, if I had it a childhood where I was abused, I was hurt, like, well, we could, you know, it's kind of like, okay, well, you might be a little messed up from that, right? Like we've got, we have that common knowledge. Like, yeah, you've been through a lot, right? But there is almost like a level of, of in shame that I see sometimes with women where it's like, 
well, I didn't have anything that bad. Like nothing catastrophic happened. So why am I like this? And you want to sort of have that tendency to blame yourself. And I think that I had that a little bit as well, because I similar, you know, similar to you, like my parents were there, like everything was fine, but my emotional needs were like, nobody cared, (laughs) you know, it's just, they're not, my parents are not emotional people. Like even now, I think I can count like on one hand, how many times my dad has called me in my entire life, you know, like I'm in my thirties now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. So like, there's things like that where we just have to come to a level of acceptance and it's not about blame right? It's not about blaming them. They are not terrible, horrible people. Like it just is what it is, but you have to learn to look at it very objectively. So you kind of have to zoom out of the situation and think, okay, well, you know, really examine, well, what was going on here? And then allow yourself to feel those things, right? Because it's like all of these patterns and the addictions that we get into, of any kind, whether it's a love addiction or, you know, addictions to drugs and alcohol, like it really stems from us not wanting to feel the things underneath, right? Exactly. And because it's a painful process. And And this is what happens when people, especially the love addict, when they will rather stay attached to someone who they know is not good for them. I can't leave him, but I can't live with him either mm-hmm. because there's this term and Kelly McDaniels, actually her book was released today called mother hunger. Kelly McDaniels, beautiful talks about, you know, um, that mother wound in us because sometimes we're looking for our the lack of love that we didn't get from our moms in the bed with men. It's not always a daddy wound, but you know, when we look at that, it's like when we're going through withdrawal, like we talk about from an addiction standpoint, it's, it's, process love addiction is a process addiction it's something that happens in our brain you know process addictions can also be like gambling and um you know there's other things versus just ingesting a substance so when you're breaking that psychological bond that you have with the object of what we call your qualifier the person who you're addicted to in particular most women can't stand that you know, it's like, you know, there's someone and Kelly's the reason why I brought Kelly McDaniels because she describes in her book, one woman is like, it's like, I'd rather chew glass, right? Because it's so painful, the obsession, as you talked about, mm-hmm. the rumination and, you know, and then, then you go into the depression and that, that withdrawal period for people, they can't stand it, but it needs to happen in order to break a love addicted pattern. And this is why, because many women... You know, and let's just keep it real. Many women and, and even movies will say this, right? You get under to get over, right? Just mm-hmm. go ahead and get on a dating website, get yourself on an app, right? Go get a hookup, right? All of these messaging and it keeps, especially a love addicted woman in a cycle. So in order to break that cycle, it takes 88 days for someone to, well, we say 90 days, but it, you know, technically it's 88 days where they break the cycle where they can kill the old synapses of the brain. But those 90 days, it's like war because it's a psychological battlefield. You're constantly thinking about him. You're constantly going back to his social media. So when we go through a detox period, right? A lot of women, they have to do it in community. They gotta go block everything. They can have no contact. And that's the hardest because people go, maybe I could just be his friend or maybe we could stay social media friends. And that keeps them in the loop over and over and over again. And now it's a year and they try to do it their way, but they're still obsessively thinking about him. Or they occasionally go back and hook up with him, even though he now has a new girlfriend, right? Lose her dignity to keep the drug going in her arms, so to speak. You know, and there's a, we joke about it, but it's not a joke. We say, we gotta keep people from going back to the heroin garage because it's literally, that's kind of what it is. (laughs) Totally. And so if somebody's listening to this right now and they're like, okay, I'm a love addict, like this is me, I'm in that cycle right now. 
what's the first step to take towards breaking that? So the first thing I would do is free resources. A lot of people will say, I don't have time or attention to jump right into therapy. So I say there's lots of resources, right? And I you could probably see one on one of my back of my book, but Pia Melody, she has a book, Facing Love Addiction. So there are podcasts, there are um, groups where you can just learn and download information, right? Because way that we change is education. And then there has to be observation. Observation means that you have to be around people who are doing what you want to do and who are living the life that you want to live from a healthy standpoint, right? And then there has to be application. Application is all the tough stuff and you have to do that in community. Most people, they can't just hear us and say, okay, well tomorrow I'm just gonna go 90 days and cut him off. You'll be back in the bed with him in a week. Right. Right, so there has to be community. So I would education, read, and then get into therapeutic coaching environments where you have support, you have community. And then the next thing is, is, is going through that detox period. And you can do that all in conjunction with support though, 90 days. And then there has to be a reset. Then there has to be a, what I believe a holistic approach, right? It's not just when we look at healing, it happens in three pillars for one, it's the mindset. Second, it's, it's the childhood or inner work. And then third, it's the physical work. Most women almost have a depersonalization um, since when they're when, when they're categorized as a love act, that means they become a detached from their body. Right. So, and trauma is stored in their body. So we feel in our, when you're obsessively thinking about someone, people can't eat, they're anxious. They see a, they see a picture of him. It gets a shock to their system. Then they get obsessed. You know, their child could be calling them three or four times before they tune in. Right. So all of that stuff takes a physical toll on us. So you have to work on your mindset. You have to do the inner child work and you have to do the physical work. So what that will look like from a healthy standpoint is from the mindset is you're to keep downloading good information and you are blocking out anything that will give you a setback and this is hard for some women kelly but you have to go no contact and that means no contact on social media block from your phone or put do not answer on your phone whatever it is take 90 days will not and this is the hard part it will not kill you not to talk to him for 90 days but when he's a drug right mm -hmm. it, it, it feels like it's the end of the world because if i don't talk to him he's going to find someone else if i don't talk to him you know what's going to happen so they get they panic it's like a panic state so going through those 90 days and then the reset is you insert all the healthy things healthy things is in the mindset it is the inner child work meaning that something we call it dialogues and susan anderson and her work around abandonment she calls it little me big me we have to know when the little girl is showing up versus the empowered woman who's going to take care of the little girl then the little girl shows up lose your dignity desperation you know that's the that's the, the I, I i ruminate and then i get obsessed so then i reach out right all of that stuff is the little girl and then there's body work yoga exercise good sleep drinking water good food to our body because when we are in that usually a love addict when she's going through withdrawal she doesn't take care of herself Right. or she this is this doesn't apply to everyone or she only took care of herself when she was in a love addict cycle right so now she has the qualifier now she's working out now she's being sexy now mm -hmm. she's doing all this other <laughs> stuff but it's not really for her it's really right. for him right right so she gets all her you know her comfy lounge clothes away and now when he comes over she's only wearing sexy clothes it's not for her so then when all that stuff goes away she abandons herself so the first thing people can do is education get yourself a supportive community and not every therapist or every coach is created equal get into a community or a support system where they know 
love addiction, toxic relationships, their specialty, because mm -hmm. most people can treat things as OCD and other stuff, and then they miss it. They miss the trauma piece, which is a huge part of that. And then um, getting into all the different things as far as trauma therapy, body work, we can't just talk our way out of our problems. We have to work our way out of our problems. And that's the hardest part, Kelly. Yeah. And I, and I love how aligned we are on this because I think that's so important. And, and oftentimes I see a lot of women that have been in, you know, therapy counseling for years, talking about these issues, talking about, okay, I see the pattern. Like, I know that it's there. I know I have this problem. I know I have trauma. I know these things. And, and, but if you don't know what to do with that, it really doesn't get you anywhere. And then you just stay in that cycle forever. And then it almost becomes worse because you're, you're like, well, I can see this happening again, but what do I do about it? What do I do with it? And so actually really it's about reprogramming your mind and your body together. Because if your mind is telling you one thing, but there's biochemical processes going on inside of your body, right? This addiction is, is a real addiction, which means there's actually like neurochemicals, different things happening inside of you that are making you feel like I need this thing. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, what you reminded me of is the first time I went to therapy and this woman, if she knew what she was doing, probably could have saved me a lot of heartache, but I was in a relationship with, uh, with a man when I was in college. And I went to this therapist um, to talk to her about this relationship. And I remember Kelly, she said to me, she's like, but you're so pretty. She's like, what's, 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 what's wrong? Like, it was like, something was wrong with me mm -hmm. that, you know, you're pretty, you have, you know, all these great things. And I'm thinking to myself, she probably needed therapy, you know, yeah. really, because it wasn't what I needed. Right. You know, it, it made me feel worse. It made me feel like, okay, well, what's your, what's your problem? Right. Versus understanding that it doesn't make a difference how pretty someone is, how thin someone is not good enough. Self-esteem has nothing to do with looks. So there are lots of times where we get more wounded when we reach for help, because then you don't want to reach for help again, because then you think, well, I did reach for help and I just feel worse. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. And I have heard that story in so many different ways from so many different women. And I think that that's important when you are seeking help is that you do, if you're going to work with a therapist, you need to work with a therapist that knows what, what this is and specifically knows like what are toxic relationships, what's happening because, you know, they'll say things to you like, oh, you know, oh, time will heal all wounds. And it's like, no, it won't. If you're somebody who's stuck in this addictive cycle and this is your pattern forever, what makes you think time is going to change anything at all, right? And also, you know, when we're speaking to our friends and different people that don't quite get it because they haven't been in that scenario, you know, you I don't think unless you've really been in the throes of that sort of level of addiction and really understand what it's like and how irrational it is and how obsessed you are, can you actually get it? right? Can you actually get what it's like? Because from the outside looking in, you really just look like a crazy person, right? Exactly. And that kind of leads us to also, and I think that this is something that happens when we're in that cycle, is if you're the woman who's doing this, you end up hiding your behaviors, right? You, you isolate yourself from your friend group because you don't want them to know because they're like, what? You said you were done with him. Like, how are you not? And then they don't understand what's going on because they don't understand this level of addiction. So then they just start getting almost like annoyed with you mm -hmm. and like, 
then you don't even want to be in the friend group anymore because you feel embarrassed, ashamed at what's going on underneath of that. So it really then I think probably pushes you even further into that addictive cycle because now you don't even have your friends to lean on. So now you're even more obsessed with this object of your desire, right? Addiction breeds in secrecy and we're as sick as our secrets. So when we do have friends where we feel like we can't really talk to them or we feel judged or we feel like, oh, okay, she's probably getting sick of me talking about it again, or here I am back with him again. And then shame and embarrassment comes into play. So then what you do is you start avoiding, or if they ask you, are things good? To your point, you start hiding, oh, things are fine. And then you push them away and then you have nobody, so to speak. And then you get into this, one of the worst places people can be in any state, whether you're love addicted or not, is in a place of psychological isolation Mm -hmm. where you feel like, yeah, you can be a around lots of people, but no one gets you, no one knows you, and that you have all these things that you feel like you're ashamed of because it'll keep you in the spiral because when you feel desperate or alone, you're now not gonna reach out to your friend, you're gonna reach out to your abusive partner or you're gonna start chasing, you're gonna do all those other things. You know, when are you coming over? I, I really miss you. And then that that becomes your time and attention becomes all about that person. And that's also a, a classic sign of being in a love addicted relationship is you abandon your friends, your family, your hobbies, taking care of yourself because you you revolve your time and your life around the person that has your attention. You're now doing all the things, you're cooking for them, they need their mm-hmm. tire change, your tire change for them, you're predicting where they're going to go for Starbucks. You become obsessed with them in the beginning, but it's some people think that's cute. Oh, he really is, and he's really, I mean, I remember one time I was listening to a, a story in our Woman Redeemed group, and she's like, in hindsight, she can see that it was little stalkers. But in the beginning, she went to her car and the qualifier had tied her favorite candy to her car door with a um, a note. And she never even told him where she worked. So, but in oh. the beginning, but in the beginning, she was saying how cute that was. Like he went right. out of so his thoughtful. way. So thoughtful, you know, and then later on, it turned to, you know, something that could have pretty much been really hurtful, harmful to her in her life, right? So in the beginning, the things that we we classify as cute sometimes are red flags, but because we don't have a meter to know what's dangerous or we don't have our friends around to say, well, uh, Janie or Susie or Kelly, uh, how did he find out where you worked? Right. (laughs) Like, does that not creep you out at all? (laughs) Really? So what do you think the tie is between this uh, love addiction and self-worth? Well, they're close cousins, or we can call them in spaghetti, right? (laughs) Because when you think about it from the standpoint, I always like to give practical examples so people can see themselves in examples. When we don't have self-worth, we don't have boundaries. Mm -hmm. We allow, accept, and accommodate a lot of bad behavior, but we don't realize all of its bad behavior because we excuse it away. So someone who has self-worth, we'll use a classic example. Let's say self-worth, you get into an argument with your partner and he calls you a bitch, right? Someone who has self-worth says, hey, Scott, that's not going to work for me. I'm sorry. You know, I don't do fights like that. That's nasty. And, you know, I'm just not going to do that. I'm out. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm talking about in a dating relationship where, let's say, someone who has low self-worth, they may say that, like, why are you talking to me that way? I can't believe you called me in the name, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm not going to stand for that. Two days later, she's back in his bed. She even forgot what happened, right? Right. Because what happens is we compartmentalize things or you excuse it away. Well, you know what? I probably was a little bit snippy with him. Someone who has self-worth knows her standard. 
she knows what she's going to allow, accept, and accommodate. And no matter how cute he is, no matter how much money he has in the bank account, there's not going to be any crossing of my boundaries because these are my pillars. Where when we don't have self-worth, we keep moving it. We move it with an excuse. Well, maybe, mm -hmm. well, maybe, maybe it was me, you know, uh, he was just angry. So we move uh, it. He's having a hard time at work right now. He's very stressed out. Exactly. And then we move it and mm -hmm. then we move it. So that's how we can recognize our self-worth issue. Because I'm, I'm a big believer and we hear that word. People don't know what it looks like in their life or they think they have self-worth. Self-worth right. has nothing to do with us giving time attention to our nails or to our hair or to looking good. That has nothing to do with self-worth. Self-worth, let, let me see you at your worst or let me see someone treat you at their worst. How you show up in that space tells me your worth. And I don't even have to hear the conversation. I just need to see how you respond. We respond to life and we don't react to life, right? Because there's a high in that. A lot of people, when we have had a chaotic childhood, we like chaos in our adulthood and right. we don't necessarily see the tie. So when women say, oh, I just like the bad boy type. I just like this, I just like that. No, you like how he makes you feel because you have to chase and you have to try to prove, right? It's up and down where relationships healthy relationships are like this there'll be times where there's high there's times where there's low and there's times when they're bored and if they're if it's like this like a zigzag you're addicted to chaos right and i think that that's something that's largely misunderstood is that addiction to emotional chaos and that is definitely the person that um you know if you were in a healthy relationship you probably just sabotage it away right like you start fights for no reason you you He's know boring. Yeah, because it's no chemistry. Yeah, it's boring. There's no chemistry. You know, he doesn't fight with me. He doesn't yell at me. Like all of these things that you say that you don't want. And so, yeah, it's really important to look at those patterns. And so if some a woman's out there sitting there like, oh, you know what? I don't have those boundaries. I do make excuses for people. Yeah, I have low self-worth. What is one thing that that they could start doing to raise their self-worth? Of course, I'm a therapist, so I would say seek therapy, yeah. seek coaching. But, you know, the first thing that they can do in all fairness is really get a hard look in the mirror and say, I don't want to live this way anymore. And imagine how you and this is another part, because when you ask when I ask a lot of women how they want to feel, they will give what I would call fluffy answers. I want to be happy. I want to be at peace. Okay, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? So we have to nail down a true vision. So what mm -hmm. I would what I would encourage, and you don't have to do therapy to do this, is a, is writing down a two page letter to yourself. How do you want to show up in this world? If you were, if you were living and living and walking your best self as far as how you feel, what would you write on that piece of paper? Right? What does that look like? Start creating an image because if we don't know what we want. We're going to aim at anything or we'll accept anything. So, but yes. once we know who we are, we know what we need. So that can be a, a that can be a simple letter is, well, who do I want to be? I, I don't feel good in this relationship. So I want to be, I want to have respect. Okay. What does respect mean? That if I say, um, I don't want to have Chinese food, that they're not going to yell at me and say, well, we're going to have Chinese food. They're like, okay, if you don't want Chinese food, then we can go get the Mexican food, whatever, right? I'm using practical examples because that's how it shows up in relationship. When people mm -hmm. are dating or if someone's listening to us and they are getting ready to date or they're getting back on a dating scene, have a boundary and see how someone responds to it. Not just one or twice, right? Because people can fake the funk and what I call it for the first three or four months. But, you know, say A when they want B and see how people deal with stress, how they deal with anxiety, how they deal with something with you showing up as a person. This is a big mistake. And I think we got to address this, Kelly. This is a big mistake women will make is I will become I'm saying this as women. 
I will become whatever he wants because I feel like I'm if I'm his per perfect woman, you know, whatever he wants, if he wants to sleep with three or four people, if he wants to watch pornography together, if he wants to smoke, if he wants, I will, I'm just going to be the cool chick. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if oh, I'm going to be go super laid back. Yeah. And they well, think that's like a badge of honor. <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, there's so much information out about like dating and how to be a more feminine and feminine attraction. Right. And this really bothers me because true feminine being a true feminine being is actually revealing the truth of your heart at all times and sometimes it's angry sometimes that chaos it's not you know there's this this talk that i hear a lot oh it's about leaning back and just letting things be and just letting them reveal no that is not a feminine being that's like recipe for you to literally not get anything that you want out of your relationship if Poor something man. is not right yeah. If something's not right and it doesn't feel good to you, you don't lean back and go, oh, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal because then what, what kind of relationship are you actually going to be cultivating if that's how you are in the beginning? And I think in the beginning, it is important to see how somebody is with your boundaries because I, I think that's one of the biggest red flags that your relationship could potentially turn toxic or abusive is if somebody doesn't respect your boundaries in the beginning, if they push your boundaries, say, yeah, I'm not really comfortable with this and they do it anyway. Or, you know, you specifically say, I don't want to do, you know, this doesn't work for me. And they do that anyway. That is red flag. Like stop, do not pass go that that person is never going to respect you right? Especially if that's happening in the beginning, because, you know, like you said, in the first three to four months, like people are on their best behavior, you know, we want to, it's not really, you don't really know somebody at all until you can really, really start diving into a little bit deeper. And that takes a little bit of time, but I think that's so important really, but you have to get clear on yourself first. And I think that that's also a big piece that is missing, especially if you're a woman who's been in and out of relationships your whole life. Like you've, you've been in this, uh, love addict cycle, like you're talking about where you get out of one relationship and then you're like, okay, well, I'm just going to start dating again and I'm going to go and I'm going to do this. And you never have time to actually figure out, well, who am I? What do I like? What is it that I actually want? And, and what is it that I desire out of my love life? Right. And I think that what you said about deciding what you want versus just accepting anything that comes is such a life changing practice. Just If you did nothing else and you just decided what you wanted to experience instead of just accepting anything that came. And I mean, you actually have to hold that standard, right? You can't just write something exactly. on a piece of paper and then throw it out the window. <laughs> just think about it, Kelly. How many times have women, you know, and we, we can say women collectively, including ourselves, that if we made a commitment to our partner, we are going to, we're going to follow through on that commitment. If I say I'm going to be there, or I say I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. But we will abandon our own commitment, right? Mm -hmm. So when we create a list of what we want our life to look like, there is nothing stopping us except us. But right. that means we have to be committed to the most important person is us. And when we think, when I think about this, and I'm not saying this from an insensitive place, right? Because I work with betrayal trauma and I know the devastations of it. But many times when we don't hold our own standard, but yet we, we expect other people to stay committed and loyal to us when we're not even committed and loyal to ourselves. So the right. very thing that we want is the very thing we have to first create in ourselves by being committed, by being loyal, by understanding our self-worth and not try to outsource it, that I want him to see my worth, all the things I add to the relationship. No, honey, he's never going to see that if you 
you don't see it yourself. And we hear these concepts all the time, but it's so hard when we're in that process, we're in that. And there truly is. And that's why when there's a breaking up of a, of a relationship, that's the best time for a woman to heal, even though she's at her worst time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's, um, gosh, I can't remember who says this. It's, it's a, it's a therapist that says like, never, never waste a breakup or something like that. It's like never, never waste a breakup because it is a time when you really can, you know, you're totally, you're broken open, essentially Mm -hmm. you're broken open. And well, what's inside, right? Like Mm -hmm. looking at what's inside, who's like, what's going on in there? What led you to this? It's a time of great growth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I actually get the privilege of working with a lot of women through that time because it's like, okay, this is, this was it. I can't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wish that we weren't programmed that way as humans, but we really don't do any work to change until we reach that point of just that desperation, right? We reach the point exactly. of, I can't do this anymore. Something has to change. And if, and if the breakup brings you to that, then great. Like maybe this is the actual best thing that ever happened in your life because you're finally ready to say, you know what? No more, never again. I'm going to do whatever I have to do and really Mm -hmm. go from there. But I think the mistake a lot of people make is they have that feeling and then they maybe start to do a little bit of it. Maybe they start even to feel a little bit better and then, okay, well, I don't really need to do this anymore. I'm good. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. And, then, and so for lasting change to happen, what do you think is the most important thing? The most important thing to me is that withdrawal period. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of women don't like to hear it, but in order to create something new, we have to kill the old. And part of that withdrawal period is I don't believe you don't necessarily have to. Some people will say, well, you need to be single for such amount of time. No, I don't think you'd have to dictate that. But you least need to have those couple of months where you break the cycle, you go completely no contact and all let all the stuff come up that needs to come up with support, with community and deal and heal so that you're. You know, I always think about it. You're either going to choose the pain today, Kelly, or you're going to choose the pain tomorrow. Right. Choose the pain today so you don't have to deal with the pain tomorrow. Right. So you can live your life. Right. Exactly. exactly. You can live your life. And that's the crazy part because the longer that you don't deal with it, it's just going to, it just keeps showing up again. It just keeps showing up again and in a different way with a different person, you know, however many years later. And then at some point you're still going to have to deal with it. (laughs) Exactly. But I do want to say this just in case people are hearing this and can hear this of this. It's just not the withdrawal period alone, right? When you're going through any grief period, it's not just time, it's what you're doing with that time, right? So you are working, you are doing the work, you are working towards your healing, but you're doing it in a period of incubation, right? Because not everyone, when you are in your most vulnerable time, you don't need to, and this is what happens, I'll see this constant, I'm sure you see this as well, is that now your girlfriends wanna take you out to get drinks, they want you to be out the club, let's have a good time. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but you're also at your most vulnerable time. Right. And when you're in your most vulnerable time, the blood sucking emotional vampires, they can smell your blood when you are <sighs> vulnerable, right? And that's why you have to be in a period of incubation. Doesn't necessarily mean you're in isolation, but you are really paying attention and time to who's around you and what you're doing during that time. Because when we look at those who have really successfully 
have gotten to a place of something they've never thought they would experience, healthy, whole, long-term relationships, they've went through that period of withdrawal and they did the healing work, the mindset, the inner child yeah. and the body work, all of that stuff. But the pivotal part is breaking that old pattern so that you can create a new pattern. Yeah. And I, I think that's so important too. And you do need some form of that. Yeah. That incubation period where, because if you think about this, right, if you go out into the world, having just had your heart broken, you're shattered, you're feeling terrible. And, and it was, you know, in those kind of relationships, you were probably put down a lot. Your self-worth is a very, very low point. All somebody has to do is come over to you and make you feel a little bit better about yourself than you already feel. And guess what? You're like, I love how I feel when I'm with this person. They make me feel so good. And then you want to be with them because you feel better when you're with them than you do on your own. So you, you know, have we call get, that Kelly crumbs. Uh, crumbs. <laughs> you know, we call right. crumbs. <laughs> right. And you accept that because you're like, well, it's, it's better than me being by myself. And I, I think for me, you know, I personally had to get to the point where I was good, me, I was just good with me. I liked me before I even really could think about introducing anybody else into the mix because, you know, in myself, you know, going through this, I'm very transparent and open about my own journey through these things is like when I tried to pretend like, Oh, I'm all good. Everything's fine. You know, it was just like one disaster after the next <laughs> really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, and, and I had to come to the point where like, okay, Kelly, like, whoop, whoop, like, let's really take a pause. <laughs> let's, let's mm -hmm. take this pause and let's see what's going on. And then the, the most interesting thing happened is like when I was in that pause period, like I really didn't want anybody else. I was like enjoying getting to know myself. I was enjoying, uh, you know, the reclamation, the reclamation of my personal power, the reclamation of like, oh, you know, I am good on my own. And once you get to that, I think it just feels so good. Mm -hmm. And then you're at the point where you're like, I'm not going to give that away. Like nobody's going to come and treat me less than how I treat myself because why would I like get away from me? What are you talking about? <laughs> right? Like you just become this instant repellent to people, you know, those emotional vampires or the people that are going to love bomb you into like mm -hmm. this weird, crazy, toxic cycle that like that stuff is so crazy. And some of the stories you hear about love bombing. <laughs> are just mm -hmm. out of this world. But you're not susceptible to that when you feel good by yourself and when you know like, yeah, I got me. And then it makes everything in your life so much more enjoyable, right? But you can't do mm -hmm. that unless you're really taking, you know, that time to really work on yourself. And what so, you just described is so worth it. It is so worth mm -hmm. it. It's so worth it. And I love that this is the work that you help women do in the world. So I have a couple more questions. One is if somebody's listening to the, you know, Dr. Janie, yes, I love everything. I want to know more. I want you to help me through this. How can they contact you? What do you have going on for them? Yeah, absolutely. So my premier program is called Woman Redeem. And we have a couple of offsets of the woman redeemed. So we have a 12 week program where we take women through those three pillars that I mentioned. It's a 12 week program, which we build it for 12, uh, 12 weeks on purpose, Kelly, because it's 90 days. Mm -hmm. So most women will use that as their detox period. So they're building community, they're doing the mindset, they're doing the inner child and they're doing the body work. So we do that right now. I'm only doing that twice a year just because of, um, we also do a retreat. So we do a retreat, which is coming up in October and that retreat we do the holistic. So we bring in someone, we partner with the yoga person 
person, we partner with a, a, a chef, we partner with the coach, we partner with anger management, equine therapy. So they're taking all that therapy, put it in a weekend. And then we have online programs. So I have a six week course, you know, breaking the toxic patterns, women redeemed. We have a, a monthly community where they're supporting each other. And we do a masterclass in the community once a month on a topic. And I bring in experts to come and talk to the women. So we have pretty much what it was like a buffet. So whatever fits someone's schedule, we, we pretty much much have it. But I'm a big believer. And I'm saying this as a therapist that we need therapy, but I'm a big believer more so for long term healing, we need to be in community. Yeah, so important. So important. And this podcast is called the worshiped woman, as you know, and to me, this is a really important concept that as women, we learn to, you know, not only care for ourselves, but actually get to a place where we worship ourselves, where we think so highly of ourselves that that's who, that's what we reflect out into the world. And I'd love to know what the worshiped woman means to you. What it means to me is that I'm living my best self. I wake up each morning when I open my eyes that I am living the life that I built, that I created, that I'm enjoying. So the day that I die and I put my foot in the casket, so to speak, is I gave it all. This life has all of me and the ripple effects, because I am a mom, the ripple effects is there are three generations that are beyond the light that I will see and they're better because of me. And that means that I, I show up every day as whole. I show up every day as happy. I show up every day from leading from abundance. I show up every day ready for the battlefield because I first find my holy ground each and every morning. And that's, I give the first fruits to me. And it takes a lot of discipline to be that worshiped woman because that means the best person that you show up for each and every day is the woman in the mirror. Yeah. And that's really the most important person in your life. <laughs> <laughs> forever. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love this conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Janie. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I have no doubts that, that the women listening to this are getting so much out of it. Thank you so much for being here with us. Appreciate you. Thank you for having me. All right, sisters. That was just the lovely Dr. Janie Lacey. If you loved this episode, do me a favor and share it with another sister that you know might need to hear it or take a screenshot tag me at miss kelly Kristen, or tag dr janie lacy her instagram is at janie lacy tag us let us know that you're listening let us know what your biggest takeaway from this episode was and as always if you love the show please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review on apple Podcasts. i would be so so grateful i love you guys so much and i'll talk to you soon